text that Carolyn just read for us in your copy of the Bible. We're in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. We've been uh, going through this book of the Bible the last couple weeks, and we'll be for a handful of weeks more as we go through uh, this letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, to a, church, a group of churches in a whole region uh, called Galatia. I'm calling today's sermon Bewitched, uh, which may have connotations of an old TV show to some of you, uh, but uh, that word appears in our text, even in verse 1. But as I was thinking of uh, the idea of being bewitched, my mind went to another old uh, entertainment thing, not a TV show, but to a movie uh, called The Jungle Book. Uh, how many of you have seen, just so I know what I'm dealing with here, how many of you have seen the like 1960s version of The Jungle Book? Okay, a decent bit of you. Okay, so if you do not know what I'm talking about, I think we have a picture, yeah, that's up on the screen here of what scene or scenes I was thinking of in particular uh, with that movie called Jungle Book. Uh, on the right on the screen, you see the main character. His name was Mowgli. Uh, he was a boy who ended up uh, being raised out in the jungle uh, by uh, animals, and he would talk to animals and, and live amongst them uh, as, a, as a wild boy of sorts as a man cub, they would call him. But there's one in the movie, at least, in the movie version of Jungle Book, there is an antagonist uh, named Ka. And that's who the snake is on the left here. And a couple different times in the movie, if you've seen it, you may remember this. I was a little kid who hated snakes and still hates snakes. And this, these scenes would terrify me, I think, when I was a little kid. Because what would happen, there's a couple of primary scenes where this happens, where this snake, Ka, uh, gets the boy Mowgli uh, kind of alone or sometimes he'll have somebody be asleep or sometimes they'll just try to isolate him and he'll either like come to him when he's sleeping in a tree or bring him up into the tree that he's in and he'll start talking to him. And as he's talking to the boy, uh, the boy often, especially as he's figuring out what's going on, Mowgli, he'll try to cover his eyes up. He'll try, he doesn't want to look at the snake, uh, but the snake is constantly trying to look at him and to lock eyes with him uh, because there is something, at least in that story, and many cultures believe this too, there's something uh, that many people believe in called the evil eye. It's this idea that if certain people look at you, if they lock eyes with you, that they can, in a sense, put a spell on you, that they can uh, get you to, to let your guards down to do the things that they want you to do, or to even, like, cast evil upon you in some ways. And so there's a couple different scenes you can kind of see in the eyes of the snake uh, the, the, what the directors were trying to do where it started to make his eyes look all like psychedelic and freaky looking as he's looking at this boy Mowgli. And then when Mowgli actually locks eyes with him, his eyes start to do the same thing. And, and the, the snake will start talking to him. It'll start uh, like lulling him essentially into sleep and it'll start coiling around him uh, ready to kill him, ready to eat him. Uh, as he's become unaware and he's let his guard down. He has been uh, bewitched. And even in one scene, there's a scene where that snake starts singing a song to him called Trust in Me. And even the S has like a fist in it that it, it just makes me cringe. I'm like, trust in me. And like, it, it, he, he's calling this boy to trust him, to let his guard down. And it, it happens through the instrument of the eye, this evil eye that he casts uh, at him and then the spell in a sense that falls over Mowgli. And why that came to mind is because this text, these handful of verses that, that we read this morning, start with this very clear question uh, from Paul where he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's the only time that word appears in the whole Bible, bewitched. 
and he's saying that with these Christians in Galatia in particular, something has happened where they've been bewitched, where there's people who have come to them, who've talked to them, who've taught them certain things, and it's as if that, what happened to Mowgli has started to happen to them, that they've let their guard down, they've started to, to not pay as much attention to what these people are saying to them, and what they don't realize is the great danger that's in it, uh, that, that it's in a sense that they're being coiled around while they don't even realize it, and it's about to suck the life out of them, it's about to even lead to death and destruction to them, and he wants them to be aware of it. Uh, there's one scene in this movie, The Jungle Book, where where his uh, guy who takes care of him, Bagheera, is sleeping right nearby uh, while the snake is doing this, and he realizes what's happening, he comes awake, and Bagheera just smacks uh, Ka, the snake, on the head, and he's like startled, and Mowgli's able to go free. I like to imagine Paul, in a sense, like that Bagheera here in this letter, where he's realized what's happening, that these people have been uh, bewitched, that they're starting to believe these things, and he does smack, he's wanting to smack those false teachers and, and make these people realize the danger that they're in, the, the spell and the sense that they've been put under. To be clear, Paul does not actually believe in the evil eye, I don't think, uh, but he's, used, he's trading on that idea of being bewitched to help them see what's kind of happening in their hearts, what's kind of happening in their mind, that they're being duped, that they're being so if you've been here the last couple weeks, you probably have an idea of what was actually happening. What was the bewitching that was happening? What were they saying? What was the message that they were saying? They're not singing songs to them, but there was some message that they're saying that's starting to dupe these people. And if you've been with us, I just wanted to recap it for you. If you have not been with us, I wanted to briefly share with you what, uh, how these people were being bewitched, and then we'll see how Paul is wanting to deal with them, how he's wanting to address that happening. So what's happening in these churches, these churches that this letter was written to, or that the churches that it was written to by the Apostle Paul, they were churches he helped start, that, that humanly speaking, he was the instrument God used to help establish and start these churches. And he had told them and taught them the truth that the way you're forgiven of your sins, the way that you're justified, like we talked about last week, declared righteous by God, is by the work of Jesus. And it's by you placing your faith in him, you resting your soul on him and what he's done for you, what he's doing for you even now. And they had believed that. They had believed the truth. God had, had given them hearts to believe. But what had happened after he left was that there were these Jewish teachers who were coming to these Galatian Christians who weren't Jewish, and they were telling them, oh, like Paul just kind of held back from you. You actually need, if you want to, to keep in the good graces of God, you need to actually start following the Old Testament that law that God gave to us as Jews, but you guys need to come and start following it. And they, they made a big deal of things like circumcision, for example. You'll see that in this letter several times, uh, this idea, because that was this physical thing that was done to sons to be an indicator that they were coming underneath the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. They would make big deals about things like that, holidays and things you could eat and couldn't eat. And uh, they, they were telling them that to be, like to trade on the language of verse 3 here, that to be perfected, you needed to come under the Old Testament law. That, yeah, Jesus may have got you started, he may have brought you into the family of God in some sense, but to be perfected, you guys need to start following the Old Testament. They were wanting them to believe in a sense that they began one way, but they continued a different way. That, yeah, you're, you're justified in the beginning, you're forgiven in the beginning because of what Jesus did for you and by placing your faith in him, but now, like as you grow, as you continue, 
uh, that, that you need to continue in a different way than how you started. Like you started with faith alone in Jesus, but now you need to add works to that. Now you need to come under the Old Testament law. And Paul has heard that they're teaching them this, heard that they're starting to believe that, and he comes guns blazing at them with this letter. This is one of the most firm, direct letters. I mean, this part of the letter even is really direct and blunt. He holds back, not at all. A lot of letters he's saying, like, these nice things. And here he's like, chapter 3, verse 1, oh, foolish Galatians. Like, he, he is calling them out for believing this message. He's not just like, oh, I feel so bad for you that you guys are being bewitched. Like, I'm so sorry. That's happening. He is holding them accountable. He's holding them responsible for how they're interacting with these teachings because they have a choice in how they respond. They're not just these mindless people that just passively are going along. They are buying in actively into what these people have told them. And Paul here in this section of the letter is going to tell them that uh, to know how to live their lives in this ongoing sense now, like after they were saved, after they were forgiven, to know how to live this life ongoingly as a Christian, He's going to tell them that they need to look back at how they began. And so the way I would summarize this section of the letter and the message today is this, that's on the screen, is that to know how to live as a Christian, you must remember how you became a Christian. To remember how to live as a Christian, this ongoing time that we sang a few songs about, this ongoing time from when I was first forgiven and brought into unity with Jesus, until I die or till Jesus returns, in this in-between time, to know how to live right now, how to think about my life, how to think about the rules I need to follow or the freedom that I have, to know how to live in the ongoing life of a Christian, you need to remember how you became a Christian, like how it started, how it began. I think that's what you see Paul doing in this section of the letter. So I'm going to have three points this morning, if you're keeping notes, uh, that, that will help unpack this text as we go through this from verse 1 down to verse 5. So I want us to think, if we're believers, think about our own Christian life and think, man, if I want to know how to live right now, I need to remember how I started as a Christian. I need to know what took place at the beginning, how things began so I can know how they continue. And so the first thing I think you see Paul doing is he's writing these Christians, and then as we get to listen in and have God speak it to us, is the first thing he's pointing them back to about how they initially became a Christian is this, I would say, in verses 1 and 2, he said, he would be telling them that you received the Spirit initially by faith. That you received the Spirit initially by faith. And so as he is pointing them in this section of the letter back to what had happened maybe several years earlier when he had come into the region of Galatia and gone around to these churches, if you see in verse 1, the second half of verse 1, he's reminding them of what happened when he came. He says... It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. When I was first reading that, I was thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean like they did some like Easter play or something? Like where they had Jesus, a fake Jesus hanging up on the cross? Like what does that mean, publicly portrayed as crucified? But it seems very much, the more you read and think on this and meditate on what he's saying, he's telling them that when he came to their churches, when he came even before they were churches, just to them, as homes, as people who would gather together, he's reminding them that he publicly preached Jesus to them, publicly told them about the cross in such a vivid way, such a real way. It wasn't just this cold message of, hey guys, you know that city over Jerusalem? There's this guy, like he died on the cross, and like, 
He came back from the dead. He was passionate about it. He was telling them in public, telling them in private, Jesus is the Son of God who became a human being and who lived obediently to the Father. But the, the pinnacle of his life, what I want you to know about Galatians is that he went to the cross for you. In a very public way, he went to the cross for you, took your sins upon himself and was crushed in your place by God's wrath so that you might be forgiven. And he's reminding these Galatian Christians, remember when I told you that? Like when I publicly portrayed him as crucified, you told him, there's, told you there's no secrets. I told you the full thing is like as if you were even there. You remember that? And then in verse 2, by his questions, he starts asking these rhetorical questions. You see him say that they received the Holy Spirit when they heard about Jesus. But it was because they heard that message with faith. That's what he says at the end of verse 2, that when they heard about Jesus and his crucifixion, his death, even his resurrection, when they heard about that, they didn't just go in one ear and out the other and then they just move on with their life. They heard it and had faith come into their hearts. They believed what Paul had told them. They believed this good news of this Savior who had died for them. And they, they tell him, he's reminding them, pointing them back to that, remember that's what happened. You heard this good news, and you received it. You heard it with faith. And he says what happened at that moment is that they received the Spirit. When they first heard the message of the cross, when they first heard about Jesus, and they heard it with faith, they, they placed their faith in the Son, Jesus, Paul tells them, you received the Spirit then. You didn't receive the Holy Spirit by hearing this message and then doing, starting, like having your son circumcised and starting to celebrate certain festivals and stopping eating certain things and start eating other things. That's not how you receive the Spirit. You receive the Spirit by placing your faith in the Son of God, by hearing this message, by placing your faith in Him. And He is pointing them first here back to the cross. I love, side note, that there's tons of questions in here, rhetorical questions in here, uh, but one of the only things that is a statement that is definitive is him pointing them back to what he said about the cross. Because he doesn't want them to form their own ideas about the cross. He's wanting to know, you heard about the cross. The cross happened. I told you about it. He's not even dancing around questions. He's reminding them, this did happen. You did hear about it. And when you did, you had faith. And when you had faith, God gave you his Holy Spirit. I would note with these rhetorical questions that Paul is not teaching them something new here. He's pointing them back to some things that they had forgotten. He's not having to impart new content to them. He's pointing them back to how their life began, how their spiritual life began, and wanting them to remember that so they know how to live in the time being, in the present. I love here that he emphasizes, you're going to see as he goes through the book, this book we call Galatians, he's going to talk more and more about the Holy Spirit especially the last couple chapters of this book, but he first mentions him here because he wants them to know the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit and how they began their Christian life so that they don't forget the role of the Holy Spirit as they continue their Christian life. And he, he, said, he doesn't ask them in verse 2, like, did you receive forgiveness by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He already had established that back in chapter 2, like the way you're justified was by hearing with faith. But here he says that you received the Holy Spirit when you placed your faith in Christ. 
I, I don't know how to put into words the, the weight of this that this should have upon us in a good way as Christians. That when we heard the message of the cross, it is not just forgiveness of sins that we receive when we place our faith in him. But we receive God himself. He, he gave us the Holy Spirit. We received the Holy Spirit when we came to faith. I grew up wanting just a get out of hell free card. And I was glad to wave that thing around like, I believe in Jesus, I'm forgiven, I don't have to go to hell, yay. And it is, was lost on me that God had given me the Holy Spirit, that God had placed him within me, that God had, had taken up residence in me, who, a person who used to be his enemy, he had placed his Holy Spirit within me. And Paul is wanting them to remember that, to remember back to when they first heard the message of the cross, when they first believed in the Son, Jesus. He wants them to know that they received the Holy Spirit, not by doing good things, but by placing their faith in the one who had died for them and been raised to life. And he, he's going to emphasize in this letter that the marker, and we talked about this when we went through 1 Corinthians, uh, the end of last year, if you were here. He wants them to know, and he would want us to know, God would want us to know, that the marker of someone who is a person of God is the possession of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost. And then the other things flow out of that. The, the faith that we have, the obedience that we have to God's word, those things flow out of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life who works those things out. The marker that the, the false teachers coming to Galatia wanted to say that was the marker of God's people was that they possessed the law, that they obeyed the law, that they kept these rules and standards and expectations that God had given in the Old Testament through Moses. That's what they were trying to say is the marker of God's people. But Paul is reminding them, no, the marker of God's people, first and foremost, is the presence of the Holy Spirit within them. That he has taken up residence within them. That is a sign of God's approval if you want one. That is a sign of God's affirmation if you want one of a person is that he takes up residence Yes, the Jewish people had received the law and it was a gift of God to them, but Jews and Gentiles, including us in this room, can receive something better than the law. We can receive the person of God himself, the Holy Spirit, when we place our faith in Christ. And Paul is pointing them back to that. You know what's better than the law? It's God, the one who gave it. And he has come to live within you. And he's wanting the Galatians to remember that. That when they when they believed in Christ, when they heard and had faith that they received the Holy Spirit. I, I will belabor this point. I want you, if you are a believer in Christ today, to realize and remember the dearness of that. The Holy Spirit lives within you. And it's not just something that happened long ago, like he came up, uh, came and took up residence in you and then somehow he comes and goes like we do some of our houses. He lives in you ongoing. That, that he lives within you now. That, that you received him when you placed your faith in Christ and he lives within you now. That is so easy for us to take for granted. So easy for us to forget. How many days go by in our lives, weeks go by in our lives, sometimes months or sometimes years go by in our life, and we don't even give a thought to the fact that God lives in me. Like the God who I should be, have as my enemy, who I should have as my judge because of the work of Christ and me being united with him, God has taken up residence within me. And I 
love that Paul says that we receive the Spirit. Not that we earn Him. Not that we gain Him in some capacity by doing enough good things for God, but that we receive Him. He was and is a gift to us, a gift of God's grace to us. Not something we deserve, but something that He offers because of the work of Jesus to, to forgive our sins and to unite us So Paul wants them to remember that they received the Spirit initially by faith. But as he continues down in verse 3, I would say, I point you uh, to verse 3. This this may seem like splitting hairs, but I don't think it is. I want you to see that he is pointing out to them that you began by the Spirit. You began by the Spirit. So as he starts verse 3, in verse 1, he had already called them like, oh, foolish Galatians, and it's like he rubs it in again, kind of twists in the knife in verse 3, like, oh, are you so foolish? And it's like, just like digging in, like, what are you guys doing? Like, why are you believing? You are becoming so foolish believing these people. But he points them back then with another rhetorical question. Side note, this is just a little thing I find humorous. I don't know if anybody else noticed this. Did you notice in the start of verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this, and you think he's just going to ask one question, and then he asks, like, five questions. That's very much like a preacher to do. So I'm going to, on my final point, and then I have five more points, uh, something like that. But he asks another question here. He says, are you so foolish? And then hear how he says this. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he had pointed them back to what happened initially in their conversion, that they heard the word of the cross and they had faith in their hearts and they received the Spirit. Now he's moving into this talk about ongoing life. Like, how, how do you live in this ongoing life? How are you being perfected? How are you being uh, perfected in your life as a person? And he's offering two contrasting ways. He says uh, that it's either by the Spirit or by the flesh. But he starts that question by saying that they began by the Spirit. And he says it that way on purpose. And I, I would point out to you, he could have said, having begun with the Holy Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If he would have asked it that way, it would have implied, hey, remember when you first came to faith and you received the Holy Spirit? That's when like the Spirit started working in you. And now you've got to continue. You've got to... Uh, decide whether you're going to keep the law or whether you're going to be guided by him. But he, I think what he's doing in this text is trying to point them even a step back further in time before they heard and before they had faith. And he's saying that you began by the Holy Spirit. It's not that you heard this message of Jesus and you decided, I'm going to put my faith in him. And then the Holy Spirit starts working. Then he comes into your life. Then he starts working in your life. He says the reason you began at all was because the Holy Spirit made it start. Like sometimes we like to think of ourselves as we are kind of like on a fence when it comes to God. Like that, that we're these neutral people who like, when I hear about Jesus, I could kind of go one way or the other. I, I, and in our experience, that may feel right. That may seem accurate. But what you see over and over again with the other letters that Paul wrote and in other texts scripture is that we are not on a fence with God. That we are on the wrong side of the fence and we are unable to come over on our own to the right side of the fence. 
But praise God that the Holy Spirit can change our heart. That, that he can take people like us and he can soften our hearts, our hard hearts, our hearts of stone we sang about earlier. He can change our hearts to where we actually then hear the word with faith. And if we didn't begin by him, we may hear the word, but it's not going to be hearing with faith. He is the one that must change our heart. He must break up the hardness of ground in our heart so that the seed of the gospel will go into it and that we'll actually believe it. We begin by him. If you want to say it this way, the Holy Spirit is the initial mover, not me. I'm not the one who initiates it with faith and then now the Holy Spirit can do his thing and now he can come in and work. No, if he didn't start it, if he didn't change my heart in the first place, I would have never heard with faith. And that is not a new, that is an important distinction that Paul is making, that you began not just with the Holy Spirit, you began by the Spirit. Like he came to you as a person who is an enemy of God and he changed your heart. He softened your heart so that you would believe in Christ. I think sometimes we tend to think of faith, I used to think of this, we think of faith as this work that I do, this one work that I do, that then God rewards, that, that God responds to that by doing his thing. But I, I think of it as starting with me, that it's a work I did, not an action, but a, a belief. I think of faith as a work. But Paul would say, faith is not a work. Faith is a result of the Spirit changing your heart. And when you hear the gospel, then you respond in faith. And that should cut to the heart. It should make us feel a sense of humility like no other to know that we began by the Spirit. He took the first move. He changed the initiation. I did not begin this process. He began it in me. And if that is true, that he was the first mover, he was the one who changed me, then that has implications for how I continue my Christian life. Because he's the one that's begun it. I didn't start it as if then it just depends on me to keep it going, to keep the wheel going. He's the one who started it. He's the one that will continue it. These, I was thinking a lot this week about some text from, this may seem random, but it will connect that of some text from the book of Deuteronomy back in the Old Testament because the false teachers who were coming to this, these churches in Galatia, they loved pointing these Gentile people back to the law of the Old Testament, even books like Deuteronomy. And they made big deals of things like circumcision, like I mentioned earlier, that, hey, there's these external things that we must do if we're going to say we're part of God's people. You need to start doing it. But what I think they missed and what when I read this several years ago and it sunk into my heart for the first time is they missed something key in the Old Testament law itself. I wanted to show you two texts from the book of Deuteronomy, from the very law that these false teachers would have been trying to teach to the Galatians and saying, hey, you guys need to do these things. You need to come under the law and get your act together. You need to start circumcising your sons. You need to start doing all these things. In the book of Deuteronomy, this was the words of Moses that he gave to the Israelites as they were about to go into the promised land. He had given, God had given them this command through Moses. He had said in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. 
So God, even in the law itself, had tried to indicate to his people that, look, there is more than just external obedience and following these rules that needs to happen. There's more than just this external change that needs to happen to you. You need to have your heart changed. You need to have a fundamental change inside you as people. And in Deuteronomy 10, he's commanding them to do it. He's saying, circumcise your heart. Spoiler alert, no one can do that. The people he's giving them this command to cannot do that. They can't change themselves. They might be able to circumcise their sons. They might be able to keep these festivals. They might be able to have the right diets, but they cannot change their hearts. That is a work that God must do. But at the, near the end of Deuteronomy, that, that same book of the Bible, as they're getting closer to going into the promised it's more future-oriented. Moses is more future-oriented, looking ahead in time. And I want you to see what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He's talking to the people of God, and he's looking ahead in time, and he says this. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you he is telling them, you, he gave them this command, hey, circumcise your heart, change your heart, but he knows they can't do it. But he's telling them as they get later in the law, I will do it for you. Like, I will change your heart. That this thing that you cannot do on your own, like you're trying to manufacture this love, manufacture this obedience, you can't do that. But I will change your heart. I will do what is impossible to you. I will change you. And you see as, as the, the scriptures unfold that God does just that. That he, he gives clarity increasingly that the way he's going to change the hearts of his people is by his Holy Spirit. That he's going to do this miraculous work of making people be born again. Uh, of changing their hearts. Of, of giving them hearts that love him, that, that serve him, that repent of their sin. That the Spirit of God is going to be the one who changes the hearts of people. It is not something that we do on our own. It is something that God alone does in us. We, if we begin spiritual life, it's because we begin by the Spirit. Not because we begin by starting to obey. We begin by the Spirit. So Paul here, back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, having begun by the Spirit, he started this in you, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Like, is, is that something, are you now like improving yourself? Are you the one it all depends on now? If he's the one who started it, is it all up to you now to just finish the job and to, to get it all right, to get yourself cleaned up? I love that, that here he contrasts the spirit and the flesh. I, I think what he's doing, he doesn't talk about the works of the law here in this verse. But I think what he's getting at when he talks about this, this, the idea of the flesh, is not the, how he talks about it usually, like the sinful flesh, but more in the sense of just human effort, human striving. This idea that, hey, you began by the Spirit, so do you now think it's just up to you to keep trying harder? To, I mean, whether you're following the law or, or some other system, do you really think it's up to you to keep the secure relationship you have with God, that your effort is going to keep that, produce that? And th 
that false teachers are teaching them things like this because that has been what we have been tempted to think as human beings from the beginning of time. That as human beings, that, that we in our flesh, that we in our efforts can get ourselves back to God. That we can make ourselves right with God. That, that by our, if we just try hard enough, if we just do enough, if we put enough effort into this pursuit of God, that we can do it. Yeah, maybe we think that God kind of gets us push started, but then we think we've got the momentum, we keep it going, it's up to us to keep it secure, to keep our standing with God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. It was wrong when Adam and Eve thought it, it was wrong when the Israelites thought it, it's wrong when you think it, and it's wrong when we think it. That, that we somehow in our flesh, in our physical and mental and, and spiritual efforts can keep good standing we do not need to prove, we talked about this last week, we do not need to prove ourselves to God. We cannot prove ourselves to God. We can't perfect ourselves. But He can perfect us. Like He's the one who started our spiritual life. He's the one who's going to grow us. He's the one who's going to keep us in the faith. He's the one who's going to raise us from the dead someday. He is the one doing the work. We are not perfected by our own often this week was thinking about that famous verse that Paul also wrote from Philippians 1, 6 where he said that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Like Paul knew that the spiritual life of Christians starts by the Holy Spirit. He knew that it was continued by the Holy Spirit. He knew that from start to finish it is a work of God, not a work of people. This idea of being forgiven, of being perfected as a work of the Spirit. We began by the Spirit, we are perfected by the Spirit, not by our human effort. Verse 4, I'll just mention briefly, he, he asked him another question where he says, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, he's implying to them, we don't know exactly what sufferings they had gone through as, as young Christians, as a young church, but they had gone through some, maybe a lot it sounds like from what he says. And he, he's just asking them in a rhetorical way, like, guys, you have been living the right way. Like, you've been trusting in Christ. You've been maybe even persecuted for it. You've been had hostility towards you. You've been grown. You've been probably impacting the world around you by them watching how you suffered for Jesus. Are you just going to throw that away? Or is that just going to be in vain and a waste? Like, why have you even been trying that? Why have you been trying to suffer with confidence in Jesus if you think it's all just up to you? But I love that he says, if indeed it was in vain. Because even as he's coming hard at them and challenging them for believing these lies, he's still, I think, holding out hope and confidence that they're going to be shaken out of this bewitchment. Uh, that, that they're going to believe the truth again. They're going to start living the truth again and that their sufferings won't have been in vain. That his efforts won't have been in vain with them as a church. The last point I would like to make is this, it's from verse 5, is that, so he's already said that you received the Spirit initially by faith, he said that you began by the Spirit, but now he's looking again more in the present time, how you live ongoingly as a Christian. I would say the summary that I'd like to share from verse 5 is this, is that you are supplied with the Spirit ongoingly by faith. So you are supplied the Spirit ongoingly by faith. Paul asks the question again. He says, is he who supplies the Spirit to you, 
and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. If you look back at verse 2 and then you compare it to verse 5, they're very similar, aren't they? They're contrasting these two ways that something could happen, either by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And back in verse 2, he said that the receiving of the Spirit came one of those ways, that it either came through hearing with faith or by works of the law. He said you received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Here in verse 5, he shifts it, though, doesn't he? He's no longer pointing to this initial giving of the Spirit, but he's talking about this ongoing provision of the Holy Spirit. He says, does he who supplies, present tense, supplies the Spirit to you and even works miracles among you, does he do so? And here's the contrast again, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the clear answer that he's wanting them to answer, it's not cryptic, is that that it happens, that, that he supplies the Spirit to you by hearing with faith not by works of the law. And so he's wanting to communicate to them that God the Father, the one who gives you the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, the one who has given him to you, the one who's even working miracles among you, which we don't have time to to describe what all those may have been, he's wanting them to know the reason he continues to supply the Spirit to you is not because you keep the law. He continues to supply the Spirit to you because you're hearing with faith. And we saw last week that when you hear with faith, it's it's as if you are united with the person of Jesus, the one who died for you and was raised for you. And as you continue to hear this good news over and over, you hear it, you hear it, you hear it, and you continue to rest your soul in Christ. You continue to place your faith in Him. Paul is saying that God continues to supply the Spirit to you on that basis, that you're united with Christ by faith. He, he doesn't keep giving you the Holy Spirit because you're obeying his law. He doesn't keep giving you like more or less of the Holy Spirit based on how well you're doing at keeping the law. He says he, he supplies the Spirit to you because you are hearing with faith. I, I was thinking about this. I, I absolutely hate the concept of what people call introductory offers in the business world. I particularly, if there's anybody who works for cable companies, I apologize in here, but like that's where it, I've had used the most often with us or with internet companies. You guys, I think, probably know what I'm talking about, where it's like, hey, we have this introductory rate for you of such and such dollars a month, and we'll even give you all these extra channels and uh, give you all this stuff for cheaper than what it would have been like to even get less than this. And so they'll present this introductory offer to you. It's like, oh, why wouldn't I do that? That sounds great. And then a year or six months later, it's like, oh, okay, now the real cost comes in. Now it's like they, they, it's like a bait and switch, although they were probably clear if you read the fine print up front. But it's like this introductory offer to get you started. And then once you're in, like they really sink the teeth in of cost with you to get you to keep it. You know what I'm talking about? That hurts me to no end. It bothers me when I try to call them like, hey, you gave us this for this X number of dollars. We've been paying that. We've been fine. Why can't we keep doing that? It's an introductory offer, sir. We're sorry about that. Blah, blah, blah. You know the drill. We think of the Christian life, the, the false teachers that were coming to Galatia think in those terms. That there's this, int- in a sense, like this introductory offer of how you get into the kingdom. Like that is by faith. They would have acknowledged that. 
that, that you come into the family of God by faith. But what they are trying to teach these people is that that's just an introductory offer. That, that the way that things continue ongoingly for the long haul is actually something different. There's a higher cost to it for you where you got to put more in. You have to start obeying the Old Testament law. So yeah, you got in at a, at a discount. You didn't even have to pay anything. You just come in through Jesus. But now there's a cost to you. You have to start following the Old Testament law. And if you don't, you are out. Paul has none of that. Like he, he, will, he wants them to see the way that you started, the way that you get into the family of God is the way you continue into the family of God. There is no introductory offer that God gives to you that then he shifts, that then he adds to it. The way that you come to him initially is the way that you come to him ongoingly. The way he gave you the, gives you the Holy Spirit initially is the same way he gives you the Holy Spirit ongoingly. It's by hearing the message of his son and placing your trust in him. It is not your keeping of the Holy Spirit. God's supply of the Holy Spirit to you is not based on you obeying Old Testament law. It is not based on you doing anything other than your unity with Christ. And that will outflow into how you live. It will outflow. We'll talk about that as we go through Galatians. It will come out in how you live your life. But those ways you change are not what keep the Spirit coming to you. What keeps the Spirit coming to you is that God sees you, God the Father sees you in Christ. He sees you as one with His Son. And I love this phrase. I was telling Stephanie last night. I just love this phrase where he talks about, in verse 5, He who supplies the Spirit in you. Like, I think often, like, I, I lose sight of that as, as if, like, I, even when I value the Spirit's role in my life, I, I sometimes just think of him as he was initially given to me and, like, what a privilege it is and honor. But I don't think in a sense of, like, God the Father, in, like, ongoingly supplying me with the Spirit. That I, I think sometimes I, I used to think of uh, my conversion, the time I came to faith, as if, like, somehow, like, this imparting of superpowers. Like, God has changed me. He's given me these new abilities. He's given me the ability to obey. Uh, I've been given the, these new capacities to obey, to do things that, that I never could do before. I've been made into a new person. I have all these new abilities. And I forget that that is true. I've been made a new creation. But more than God making me into a new person, he has placed a person within me. He has given me the Holy Spirit. He continues to give me the Holy Spirit. Day by day, moment by moment, he supplies me with the Holy Spirit to help me face temptation, to help me to say no to uncleanliness, to help me to say yes to righteousness, to help me love people, to help me love him, to help me share the gospel, to help me in all of my life. Paul started this text by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I think he, I don't know why he asked these things in rhetorical questions. I think he knew who had bewitched them. They knew who had bewitched them, right? There's probably faces and names that he knew that he probably just wanted to like have a stern talking with them, conversation with them. But I, it was interesting as I was chewing on this last night to think he asked it in a rhetorical way, who has bewitched you? I think that maybe in some sense, 
help these Galatians see that this, there's something more going on here than just human to human. That there's something more than just these Jewish folks coming into your congregation and trying to tell you you need to come under the law. Because I think you could equally answer that question, who has bewitched you? As much as you could probably have named teachers that were coming into that church, you could also answer by saying Satan. That, that he is one who takes great delight in bewitching Christians, or at least trying to. They, I think, if, if, not literally, but metaphorically, if they would listen closely, if, if they could have listened closely to some of these teachers who were coming in, that they would have heard a little bit of the hiss that Satan gave them. Something that seemed good to them. Yeah, like, God gave this law, like, we should keep it, or why shouldn't we circumcise our sons? Why shouldn't we keep these holidays? Why shouldn't we eat these things and not these and dress these clothing and, and not associate with these types of people? Why don't we come under the law? It seems like a good thing. It seems right. But if they would listen closely, I think they'd hear the hiss of Satan. Because he is the great deceiver. And he doesn't just go after people who are enemies of God. See, they, he's fine with people who don't have any regard for don't have any love of God. It is people like us that he particularly wants to come after. That he wants to look in the eyes and deceive us and say, Jesus is not enough. You need to follow all these laws. You need to prove yourself to God. You need to perfect yourself. He would love to say those things to us and for us to start to believe those. He's done that from the beginning, right? He's tried to, to lure human beings into disobeying God while also convincing us that no bad is in us, that there's no danger in us, and that we go contrary to God. He did it with Adam and Eve, telling Eve, like, you're not surely God, even though he knew full well the consequences of his sin, he disobeyed. And he does similar things to us, that he, he will sometimes use other human beings, he'll sometimes use this temptation within our own heart, that he will come to us and try to tell us what the way God has told you to approach him is not enough. That you need to add to it. You need to improve upon what Jesus did. You need to complete what he started. He would love to, to twist even a desire to honor God, a desire to obey God, into a desire to prove ourselves, to earn something from him, to, to get something from him as if we're manipulating God. Satan would love to twist he does come to believers. He does come and try to tempt us and try to, to bait us into believing lies that are subtle. To believe that what Christ did is not enough. And friends, he, and we can hear this the right way, Satan is stronger than us, less loves God. Satan is smarter than us, less loves God. He is craftier than us. He, he is powerful beyond belief. Our Savior is greater than every other. Because he came one time, he probably came many times, we have one at least recorded for us when Jesus walked this earth where Satan came to him. His, his I don't know what that was actually like, but metaphorically his hiss trying to get Jesus to disobey the heavenly father. To try to get him to go contrary and to try to twist some of the words of the heavenly father uh, for his own own 
peace will lead up to Christ and try to transcend Christ and bring out Christ. But he did not do that. He did not have the rage. He could look Satan square in the eye and say, you will not fool me. You will not tempt me. You will not change me. I love my father and I detest that person. And he did that even all the way to the point of death where I'm sure Satan was tempting him to come off that cross. Like, it would just be easy. Just come off of this. Like, surely your heavenly father put him on this. And Jesus, every time, he resisted. He, could, he was more powerful than Satan. He would not be bewitched by Satan. He saw through his lies. He didn't fall for his tricks. He perfectly lived. And then he suffered the consequences for us who are weak, us who have denied, us who have been bewitched, us who have believed lies. He suffered in our place. He was crushed in our place for our great he can empower us to face sin. He can empower us to, to face the lies that we're tempted to believe, to, to not be intimidated by people who come to us with false teaching or even by Satan himself when he tempts us so that we can stand in confidence, not in our own power, not in our own works that we've done beginning or ongoingly, but in the work of Christ. And I am mighty with him. Isn't that something? Because we have an advocate who sits father right now and he's pleading for us and he can help us to not be bewitched, to not believe this lie that Christ loves me. So from start to finish, we break that open. He's feared initially by Satan. He began by fear and he defeated fear with love. Let's pray. Lord, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us.